eyes while um, my wife Lynn reads this, the scripture to us. Okay. The scripture for today is from Luke chapter 11. We'll be reading verses 14 through 28 in the ESV. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own place, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit had gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and finds none, it says. I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Thank you, Tom and Lynn. Tom, thank you for serving as an elder, and Lynn, so instrumental in our church. Thank you. So back in 2004, I was 19 years old. I was living in Boca Raton. My parents were paying my bills. Life was very comfortable. And I suppose that if I looked down at a, a local paper, I, I would have been aware of the headline, America at War in Iraq. But if I'm honest, I would say it would have affected me very little. That even though we had been enmeshed in a prolonged war, I was unaware of it, didn't think about it as often as I should, and certainly didn't participate in any meaningful way. And I fear that in that uh, kind of position is where a lot of Christians, we find ourselves that when we open up the Word of God, as we do today, we see actually there's a great battle raging, a battle for the souls of men and women, the chief of God's creation, human beings, that there's a war between those of us who would come to God on His terms and those of us who would turn to our own way, that the battle rages, and we're called as Christ followers to be engaged, to be aware of it, to be prayerful, and we so often fall short and are lulled to sleep as I was at 19 uh, in that illustration. So in our passage today, I'd really like to make one preface comment and then two points about uh, the nature of uh, being a Christian uh, in, in the time in which we live. So firstly, you'll notice in this passage that Jesus and his followers 
faced harsh accusations. That this story begins, you think, well, it's a very positive story, isn't it? That you have uh, a mute man, a man who couldn't speak. It must have been a terrible thing to not be able to communicate in an oral culture, a culture where there would be high illiteracy. And so um, this is his predicament. And Jesus comes in, and uh, with one little word, so easy for Jesus, do you love that line in verse 14? Uh, The mute man spoke. It's a lovely line, the mute man spoke one little word from Jesus. And instead of celebrating what would, uh, I, I would have hoped to have been a, a great moment, a, a, obviously a miracle, that rather Jesus' opponents uh, hurl a, a nasty slur at him. And you'll notice that never are Jesus' miracles denied by his opponents. I think that's worth mentioning. They didn't say, well, this is a bunch of magic. You know, there are actors involved that didn't really happen. The guy was, fa-. you know, whatever you attributed, it's never that. Um, it's welcomed, it's obvious to everyone that a miracle was worked, but what is in question is uh, the power by which this work came. And so Jesus' opponents say, this is by the work of Beelzebul. You say, what in the world is Beelzebul? Uh, Beelzebul is built on the root of the god, the Canaanite god Baal. And so by the time uh, in the ancient Near East we get to Jesus' time, it means something like Lord of the Flies. It's a play on the word, and it becomes a, a cipher for Satan himself. So they observe the miracle and say, Jesus, you're satanic. And I raise this because I think we too, offer, uh, too often gloss over the fact that um, rarely in the history of being among the faithful... Uh, is it a matter of convenience? That throughout the history of our faith, that those who would say, Jesus is king, we need to be saved from ourselves, from our sin and our weakness, that when we profess that, as I know every member of our church does, we say, Jesus is Lord, that we're going to open ourselves up to harsh words. And this, depending on your personality, is a very hard thing. But if you think about it, say, just trace with me. You know, you think of Paul. uh, You read 2 Corinthians, say, Paul was made fun of for how he looked. He was made fun of for how he spoke. He was mistreated and disfigured on account of preaching Jesus. The earliest Christians were often made fun of. You know, they were called cannibals. You know, and you say, well, why were the early Christians called cannibals? because they would do something we're going to do in a few minutes. They celebrated the Lord's Supper, and in the Lord's Supper, the bread and the the wine represented the body and blood of Jesus, so probably not really believing that they're cannibals, but this became a slur. You know, those Christians, they're so carnal, carnal, those cannibalistic folk. Or perhaps, seems to be the case, that they were often accused of being incestuous. You say, why was that? Well, because they called each other brother and sister. And they tended to marry other Christians. So again, they were made fun of for living out their faith. I'll put up a very early piece of graffiti. So on the left, you have the actual inscription. This is uh, at least 1,700 years old, between 1,700 and 1,800 years old. And the Greek inscription underneath says, Alexamenos, that's the man's name, worships his God. So clearly, this is uh, early graffiti that mocks what a Christian believes, that you are those who think of your God, your God is nothing more than an ass upon a cross, undoubtedly a kind of anti-Christian slur. You know, you come up into the modern era then, you know, you read about the, uh, you know, 18th and 19th century 
British evangelical open-air preachers and how terribly they were treated. Uh, just this last week, we as a board reading a biography of a man named Robert Chapman and how he would be out preaching about Jesus. And on one occasion, the local grocer comes out and spits in his face. You know, I recently read a, v- a review, very sobering, about academic departments across universities. So between, depending on the department, 40 and 60% of university professors say that we would discriminate against evangelical Christians. You know, I think that 60% would say I would actively oppose an appointment of a person who would actually believe in the Bible and Jesus. So I am trying as delicately as I can without uh, you know, overstating it, but I suppose what this is really about is preparing a congregation like ours in the time in which we live to have to face the reality of what it looks like to have real faith in Jesus as King and a life of convenience. That we don't like to be called mean things. I don't know anybody who's ever been like to be called mean things, satanic or, or cannibalistic, or you know, you people want to return to this kind of state in the past, and you're, you're, you know, whatever it might be. But I'm trying to show us today that that's always kind of been built in. That when we say Jesus is Lord, that that can uh, attract a, a kind of uh, dislike from the onlookers, as it does here in Luke chapter 11, and at many times in Jesus's ministry. So we have to think carefully about real faith and about convenience and about the reality of words spoken against uh, what, what it means. Now, notice Jesus's response to you. How does he take this? I think he responds in a sober-minded uh, way with reason and truth. So here he does, he does a good work, and they say, well, you're doing this by the hand of Satan. And Jesus, as he so often does, unpacks in one line what would become one of the great truths of of life. It finds its way, actually, I think most prominently in our own tradition, into a little speech in 1858 by Abraham Lincoln called the House Divided Speech. It's called the House Divided Speech. You don't think people look at that and say, Lincoln, pretty crafty coming up with that. Well, Lincoln knew his Bible. It's from this. And Jesus is making what is a most obvious point that we in our fallen and sinful state cannot quite apprehend. And it is this. He says, well, if you say that I'm casting out demons by Satan, who is the head of demons, can't you see that that would be fighting against himself? And any group or team that fights against itself, it's not going to go well for them very long. Self-evident truth. A lot of political philosophy unpacked in one little line, and you think about that. Say, I've seen a lot of churches, sadly, fail. I don't think, I'd have to, of all those, I don't think one of the churches has failed because of an outside group coming in and putting pressure on them. Not not in our context. You know what it almost always is? Inner dysfunction. Say, Jesus replies reasonably and with truth says, gentlemen, you have your own exorcists. They're doing the same thing I'm doing. Do you think your exorcists are behaving on, on behalf of Satan? Well, of course they're not. But if what you witnessed really is from God, well, guess what, gentlemen? You've got a decision to make. And I think this is a lesson for us, again, kind of by way of preface comment, that we as Christians in this time who believe that Jesus is Lord, that he is king, that we're very existence is for his glory, this is so incredibly countercultural that there will be harsh words and that we, as we model our Savior, should respond with reason and with truth and, if you will, the skin of a rhinoceros and the heart of a child. So we face the harsh words in a context 
that doesn't quite know Jesus as Lord, and we're invited to respond with our minds and pointing to the king. All right, secondly, you'll notice that this whole section, you think some interesting little tidbits and, you know, interesting story about the mute man speaking. Whenever Jesus does a miracle, which he does many, you read the four Greco-Roman biographies, he's working lots of miracles, it's never about the miracle in and of itself. You say, wow, that's, that's very interesting. The mute man spoke, fantastic. It's always about, uh, it's a signpost to a deeper reality of what it means to be followers of Jesus. So let me show you what I mean. So this uh, point of the story, I think, really comes in verse 20, where Jesus says, what you just witnessed, this mute man speaking, is a demonstration that the kingdom of God has broken into the world in a new way in the ministry of Jesus. That those of us who've surrendered to Jesus as king, we say we are subjects of the king now, and as we live out our mandate to represent Jesus now, that his kingdom is being advanced in our very midst, midst through his subject, that in Jesus the kingdom has broken in, and we're called to live differently. And he tells this little story, look again, verses 21 and 22. There's a little parable attached to this miracle. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace... His goods are safe. Yeah, fair enough. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Pretty straightforward. So you got a strong man. He's got a lot of nice things. He's guarding it. Nobody's going to break in until a stronger man comes in and overpowers him. What does this mean? This means that the world, in its fallen state, in our rebellion is under the sway of a strong man, that is, Satan and his minions, that the powers of darkness are real, that God, in fairness, has handed us over, to use that language of Romans, has handed us over to ourselves. Well, if this is what you want, my will be done, living for ourselves, that the sin as a great uh, pathogen has overcome the globe. Say the strong man holds tremendous sway. But who's the stronger man? Well, Jesus just showed us that the stronger man with one little word can cast out the demons. That Jesus is the stronger man who's come in, and for those who entrust themselves to Jesus, that he breaks the power of sin, that he releases the captives, he liberates us, and we stand with him in victory. Say, that's the nature of the parable, that this is all about understanding the nature of reality that the world is under the sway of dark forces, that Jesus has broken into the world to liberate those who are his, and we have a mandate to live for him and to proclaim his kingdom. You say, that's pretty deep. It gives me a very charge for living. Now, what else? In addition to that, you'll notice verses 24 to 26 uh, stacked up on top of the Jesus and Beelzebul story. I'm going to reread it, because I think at first, you say, what's this doing here? Let's have a listen. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person... It passes through waterless places seeking rest, and finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. What do you think about that? 
it reminded me of the guy, you know, his young daughter's learning violin and it's a bit squeaky. And after he gets to uh, lose his patience, he says, you know, honey, maybe start thinking about another instrument. She says, okay, dad, I will. And a few days later, she's given up the violin and says, dad, I'm, I want to take up drums. And uh, you see the dad say, I have invited uh, something worse. It's a bit like that. I think the point of this is what Jesus is saying is when you're dealing with the dark impulses in the world, that if you think you're going to get yourself out of that by behavioralism and ethics, you're actually going to find yourself in a worse position than when you started. In a way, what I think Jesus is saying, you must be born again. It's not a matter of saying, I got to tidy this up a bit. You know, I, I do, I'm in a bad place. I've not been doing my best. And you say, I just need to, you know, maybe if I can just bring this back a little bit and try something new, make the adjustment. Here are the 10 easy steps. And you, you get it going and say, okay, I can do this. And then what happens? You're gripped by the same power and down you go, only it's worse. Say, so we have words for this. In crime, it's recidivism. We know that this is the nature of any kind of addiction. How about diets, right? Say, well, I can get that going, and the numbers are looking good, and I, I've had, you know, say, it's been a good month on this particular diet, and then we go right back to our old habits, you know, all the weight comes back on, and the, then even more so, Jesus is making that illustration in the spiritual and moral, moral realm. Say, oh, I've really got to clean up my act. I'm really in a bad place. I've been doing all these nasty things, and I feel this, this realm of darkness closing in. I just got to shape up a bit. He says, when we do that and we don't turn and surrender, to Jesus, we'll find ourselves more discouraged than when we began. This is about surrendering to Jesus. I need help from the outside. I can't overcome the powers of darkness. I must be made anew. I must be given a new heart, and I must be granted the Spirit of God to obey Jesus and live out that calling. Now, how about verses 27 and 28, last little uh, section in what we read. Again, building on this theme about this pointing to great truths of what it means to know God through Jesus. And as he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. We don't know who this lady was, but we're all indebted to her because she articulates something we all really uh, I think believe to be true it, it goes something like this well I would believe in Jesus more if I was right there I mean if I witnessed this stuff I mean how great it would have been to be Jesus's mom I mean that would have been the best position of all and notice there's no denial of that Mary was ob obviously a blessed woman that God chose Mary and gave Mary grace uh, as we all receive grace that Mary nothing in this passage is taking away from the significant role Mary played but, but look at what Jesus says in verse 28. It's quite staggering. It's actually more blessed. You're in a more blessed position. That is, you're in good standing with God when you hear the word of God and obey it. It's better to hear what God says and obey it than it is to give birth to Jesus, as great as it would have been to give birth to Jesus. Say, why is it every week? It must be incredibly countercultural. If you're here for the first time, you've not been in church for years, it must be incredibly countercultural. You have all these people, you stand, you're reading a passage on Jesus and Beelzebub, and you're thinking, these people actually say, why, why do we do that? Uh, why uh, every week do we come here? And as I often say, what we're doing every week is we're opening up the Word of God 
that each one of us, it's not coming across and saying, this is, these are 10 thoughts Shaw randomly thought up during the week and he think they'd be good for you, but rather we're opening up the word of God and all of us are sitting underneath it. And hopefully we're saying, yes, this is what this passage is about, and we're thinking about how we can encourage each other to obey it, to listen, to help each other come under, under, you know, underneath what God is saying. That's why we preach, and that's why nothing in our church competes with Scripture. Uh, it's a value we have, the first value, say, on a team. In our church, nothing will compete with Scripture. Why is that the case? Because it's our authority for the out, uh, from the outside. You get rid of the authority from the outside, what do you have? You have human opinions. And so we open up God's word because Jesus tells us plainly, what is it that he wants? He wants us to listen to what God is about and what he wants of us, and he wants us to obey it. So the miracles and the healing of the mute man and the sayings are pointing to these giant truths of what it means to be a Christian that the kingdom of God has broken in in Jesus, we're his subjects, we have the fortune, we say the good position of doing his bidding, that Jesus articulates our need to be born again and made new, and that our allegiance to Jesus and our ability to enjoy him and, and really, quite frankly, know him has nothing to do with physical proximity and everything to do with listening to him and obeying him until we meet him face to face as we sang. So Jesus and his followers they face some harsh accusations. Jesus is pointing us towards big things about what it means to follow him. Now, lastly, what about the nature of this battle? This battle for souls, this battle for those who know Jesus and those who don't, the two sides. As we look at this, Jesus and Beelzebub, maybe you're here, you invited a friend today. You say, oh, I invited a friend. What's the passage going to be? And you, you, know, you read and you say, oh, my goodness, Jesus and Beelzebub. Uh, demons. That's what he's talking about. And you're kind of squirming in your chair. You say, I wish it was a different passage. I learned something from Francis Schaeffer, the, the apologist evangelist. Schaeffer says, in a passage like this, you don't shy away from it and be embarrassed about it. He says, you start with this. And the reason why Schaeffer would say you start with a passage like this because it shows the drastic difference in worldviews. You see, ladies and gentlemen, faith in Jesus, surrendering to Jesus and thinking that your life is for God's glory, is not something that you can pigeonhole into naturalism. To say, well, I'm going through life and I, you know, I, I enjoy pleasure and I think there's just stuff, and oh, Jesus, nice chap, turn the other cheek. I like that unifying figure, you know, kind of a downtrodden revolutionary, poor chap got hung on the cross. Let me just kind of, you know, fit him in there somehow in this other stuff going on. You say, a passage like this shows us the great difference between a naturalistic worldview of stuff and life in the Lord Jesus and where the real battle is. That being said, a few thoughts on this. So you're sitting with your friend, you say, how in the world are we supposed to think about demons in our own time? I think that's a good question. Bible clearly teaches they're a reality. May I just, for a few moments, think about four dimensions of this and how we might approach it. Firstly, when we see what I would, we, we could all call loosely, unfortunate occurrences in the world, do we see those as matters of just bad human decision-making? Very delicate matter. This past week, Chicago, the shooting. 
Okay, very sobering. You've been studying that, the young man's situation. You can look at that and say, bad, bad dad, uh, financial mess, lots of dysfunction around that, uh, bad failed government program, bad school. You say, are we, is it just on that plane? Or is there an element when this kind of thing happens where we look at this and we're so moved in a negative way to say, I see a force at play beyond just bad decision-making, but actually a force of darkness has come upon us in a very real and, quite frankly, local way. And I think deep down, actually, I think deep down there's a lot more awareness of this kind of thing than meets the eye because you can tell how people talk about it. You say, uh, listen to the difference between mistake, failure, oversight, those types of words. First, the word even, I think, non-believing people will use, evil. This was evil. When we describe acts as evil, I think we've moved beyond just a human dimension to something that people sense is a force of darkness that has come upon us that is seeking ruin and destruction and trying to instill fear among God's the crown of God's creation, which is human beings. So I guess what I'm saying, do you see in the so-called unfortunate, the most nasty things we witness, which we witness all too frequently, is it just human failure? Or do you, as I do, sense an element of darkness? And is that where we see activity of our adversary? Secondly, what about the mute man? You say, well, you know, if this is how demons work, you know, question in your studies, like how, you know, what do demons do? We don't know many mute people. Uh, Mallory wishes at times I was a mute person, uh, but that would be terrible for me. Uh, sorry, dear. Um, mute people are not around that much. Therefore, there are no demons. What if we thought about it this way? That the tongue is one of God's great gifts to homo sapiens. It's something that we have that no other member of the animal kingdom has, at least in a meaningful way, that what I mean by that is sophisticated language. If you read James chapter 3, James chapter 3 really exalts the tongue. It says, this little thing in your mouth has the ability to do tremendously good things and tremendously bad things. Now, the mute man, Satan, incapacitated this mute man's great gift from God. And while we may not know many mute people now, I ask you, do you know a lot of people who misuse their tongues and use their tongues to defame the name of Jesus? Which do you think is a greater accomplishment of Satan? Making someone mute or allowing someone to use their great gift to do incredible damage? And when we view it that way, say, well, maybe there are forces of darkness more prevalent than our modern, sophisticated evangelical elites even would let us seem. How about other illnesses? You know what they used to call, um, I don't think we use it anymore, but what used to be called in the pre-modern literature, hysteria, someone's suffering from hysteria. See, now what we call hysteria has been retermed functional disorders. You just look, there's a whole wing of medicine on what is called functional disorders. It's a very real branch. You know, Cleveland Clinic, UH, they all have like a functional, a functional disorder is something where you say it's manifesting, uh, th this illness is manifesting itself in the body. We have no idea its cause. It's just there. Do you have a, a worldview, just a little gap 
to say maybe there are some dark forces that are wreaking havoc on the chief of God's creation and causing our bodies not to do as God intended. So that's point number two, just something to think about. Thirdly, on this matter, can we take a global perspective? You say, in our culture, we say, well, I can't believe demons. Who, who believes in demons anymore? I mean, haven't we moved beyond that? Say, that runs the risk of being very snobbish. Because I think if you're in places like Southeast Asia, I'm very excited to have lunch with the family from Zambia after church today. I'm going to ask him about these matters. But I would have a guess. You say, in a lot of the world, millions and millions of people would have no problem thinking about dark forces it would be a part of their everyday life they would look at us and say america's problem is that they don't recognize a real significant problem in their own myth so take a global view you say forces of darkness are very real lastly that we are coming more and more to realize that what we would term spiritual problems and then i'll use the phrase draw real blood there's been a big swing back to things that happen above the shoulders what we call depression of soul and saying actually we can't just ignore these things and medicate them but this is a significant obstacle we as christians of course we'd say well as the medical naturalistic medical community tries to sort it out say well it's a great spiritual problem and until you solve the spiritual problem you're not going to solve the societal problem so just a few thoughts for you again you're with your friend say how in the world might we understand demons perhaps those are a few uh, points to, to think about now one, one objection at this point you say are you telling me that we can be demon possessed if you're a christian you cannot be demon possessed you say why is that because we've recognized our need to say i surrender to jesus when we surrender to jesus as lord he gives us the gift of the holy spirit that lives within us and points us to jesus and convicts us of sin that we become the dwelling place of god that is his spirit so we cannot if you're a christian be demon possessed but we can be pushed around by demons. That is discouraged by them. I think Luther had it right you know, in the famous hymn, you know the verse, and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. Say Luther had it right. There's many dark forces in the world, many terrifying things and scary things, many things coming at you. But if you're a Christian, God has willed that his truth will triumph through you. And as that verse goes on to say, one little word from Jesus will fell the devil. So Christian, how are we going to land the plane? You're a Christian. There's a real battle. Satan wants to sift you as wheat. He wants to discourage you in your faith in Jesus. He wants you to listen to the cultural narrative, say, oh my goodness, all these things, and you're going to pay attention to that Galilean. Well, you forget him. You do life on your own terms. You go out and chase. You, you can do it. Do it yourself. Say, those voices, the discouragement in your faith, it is a significant battle, which is why last week, remember the little line, and lead us not into temptation. Lord, that we are in a battle for souls. Help us to play our part. Help us to live with urgency in a time that will lull us to sleep. May we not be dampened in our faith in Jesus and our calling in him. Say non-Christian. In closing, I'll draw your attention to Luke eleven twenty-three. We end on a challenging note today. Notice what Jesus says here after this episode. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters we don't like that do we 
say, why don't we like that? Because there's a choice. And there are two sides. And for those of us, as I often like to do, to straddle the line, to plug Jesus into my, you know, comfortable, middle-class, gentlemanly lifestyle. What do you think Jesus says about that kind of neutrality? Well, I'll, I'll punt on this one. I got lots of time. I mean, I'm healthy. I mean, I, I don't know, living for the glory of God, surrendering to Jesus, this great battle. I mean, the mission of the church. Oh, my, give me a... Say, pay attention, please. Whoever is not with me is against me. There is no place for neutrality. And that we cannot be these casual Christians anymore as our culture has too long permitted. And so I would pray with you to say, there's something in Jesus the world doesn't offer. The world is a dark place. I feel these forces in my life. I'm like the guy. I try to clean it up for 10 days. It goes well. And the force comes back all the more vengeful. You say, Lord, I need to be made anew. I need the voice from the outside to renew me and give me a new heart. Help me to see the glory of Jesus. I pray that's your prayer today. So I'll call the team back up and we'll go into a time of the Lord's Supper. Father, thank you for this sobering truth that your kingdom has broken in and while we are like those who just maybe, maybe occasionally think about it when the passage comes up, help us to be those who wake up in the morning and say there's a real struggle, an eternal struggle about the souls of men and women that by your grace, those of us who are members of this church, believers, that for no, no work of our own, that you've redeemed us and set us right. So help us to live with this urgency of being in a battle. Help us to do as Jesus did, as even as we would maybe face harsh criticism and starting to, to squirm in our seats a little more than we have about what it means to be a Christian in our land, that we would respond with reason and truth and steadiness, casting our cares on Jesus. And Lord, help us to see this challenge that while we like to be neutral in a lot of things, that there's no neutrality when it comes to what you've done in the Lord. And that we would be those who are all in and committed and steadfast, holding each other up in love. Help this to sink in, Lord. May we obey it by your spirit for your sake. Amen.